0: Hello and welcome to Swana Region Radio, a weekly review of politics and culture bringing you the voices of the voiceless from Kolkata to Casablanca. My name is David Lloyd and I'm a member of the South Asia, West Asia and Northern Africa or Swana Collective that brings you your weekly half hour of Swana Region Radio. My co-hosts today are fellow collective members Nima Ardalan and Hamoud Sali. Welcome to the show today Nima and Hamoud. In September 2020, we received the devastating news that David Graeber, anarchist and anthropologist and activist, had passed away in his beloved Venice. Graeber was probably best known for two books that have been widely discussed on Pacifica stations and even on some of the mainstream media. Debt, the first 5,000 years, which came out in 2011, and BS Jobs were not allowed to pronounce the full title on air, even when the airwaves are saturated with actual BS and genuinely toxic language, there are a few four-letter words we can't utter. Uh, BS Jobs came out in 2018. He was a leading light in the Occupy movement and a lifelong anarchist, a fact that may have cost him his job at Yale University though at the time of his death, he was a professor at the London School of Economics. However, our show today is dedicated to recalling another important side of his life and commitments, that is his strong solidarity with and vocal support for the democratic confederalist experiment that has emerged in liberated Rojava, that part of northern Syria that makes up the western region that the Kurd, of Syria that the Kurds have historically inhabited. Graeber regarded Rojava as a democratic social experiment, such as had not existed since the Spanish Civil War in which his anarchist father had fought on the side of the Republic. Given that media attention has for some time turned away from Syria, other than covering Israel's relentless bombing of the war-torn country in the waning days of the Trump regime, the precarious situation of Rojava since that president's thoughtless and abrupt withdrawal of American troops may have been largely forgotten by most Americans. Dismal as that situation is, the social revolution in Rojava continues, and we turn today to a conversation about it in memory of the great David Graeber.
1: Today, in honor of David Graeber, we consider Rojava's groundbreaking experiment in what they call democratic confederalism a community organized democracy that is fiercely anti-capitalist and committed to female equality while rejecting reactionary nationalist ideologies rooted in the ideas of uh, imprisoned kurdish leader abdullah ojalan the system is built on effective gender quotas bottom-up democratic structures far-sighted ecological politics and a powerful militancy that has allowed the region to keep ISIS at bay. The formerly marxist Leninist PKK has declared that it no longer even seeks to create a Kurdish state. Instead, inspired in part by the vision of social ecologist and anarchist Maury Bookchin, it has adopted the vision of libertarian municipalism. Calling for Kurds to create free, self-governing communities based on principles of direct democracy that would then come together across national borders, that it is hoped would over time become increasingly meaningless. In this way, they proposed the Kurdish struggle would become a model for worldwide movement towards genuine democracy cooperative economy and a gradual dissolution of bureaucratic national states. Graeber was one of the handful of Western intellectuals to see what Rojava meant to the people of the region and people everywhere. At a time when the revolution there was at its most radical and fragile pointedly asking is the world and this time most scandalously of all the international left really going to be complicit in letting history repeat itself
0: so regular and long-time listeners may recall our roundtable on Murray Bookchin back in 2017 in which we discussed Bookchin's thought and his relation with an influence on Kurdish leader Orjalan with his partner and collaborator Janet Beale today we're happy to be joined by Debbie Bookchin Murray's daughter for a roundtable discussion with David Graeber's partner, Nika Dubrovsky, on David's work and commitment to the people of Rojava, the Rojavan revolution, and the cultural and feminist experiments being explored, explored there. Debbie Bookchin is an investigative journalist, author, and listeners will be interested to know, former press secretary to U.S. Congressman Bernie Sanders. She's published in The Nation, Atlantic Monthly, and many other venues. She's co-author of The Virus and the Vaccine, came out in 2004, and Debbie, I think maybe we should do a separate show on The Virus and the Vaccine that should be very relevant right now. Um, And she's recently co-edited and introduced a new book of essays by her father, Murray Bookchin, called the new next revolution, popular assemblies and the promise of direct democracy. Uh, Nika Dubrovsky was born in 67 in Leningrad USSR and grew up among late USSR's artistic bohemia within the unofficial cultural scenes of squats and samizdat. She immigrated from the Soviet Union in 1989. In 2006, Nika met David Graeber in New York, and a few years later, the Anthropology for Kids educational art project emerged that I will talk about in a few minutes. After her husband David Graeber unexpectedly died in 2020, Nika and friends organized Carnival for David to celebrate his life and mourn his death, which took place in 250 places worldwide. Since then, Carnival for David was transformed into an informal community, the Museum of Care that combines offline residencies and online projects. And again, I I hope we'll talk about that soon. So welcome to the show, Nika and Devi. It's, It's heavy for us to have lost two such inspiring figures of the anarchist tradition, but it's also a real joy to be able to commemorate their work in the spirit of the futures that they both imagined. And I wondered, Nika, could you start just by telling us a little about David and how he ended up in Rojava?
2: Um, so for David, uh, Rojava was like really important place. Uh, he was always saying that uh, it's quite interesting that the world is... The main task of uh, all powers is to fight terrorism, uh, mostly Islamic terrorism. But he is the people who actually defeated it, and nobody is talking about them. So he was, like, endlessly trying to contribute as much as he can. Uh, For example, he he wrote a couple of articles. Actually, he wrote much more, but it was extremely difficult to publish them, because uh, it was even comical. So... Major newspapers will ask him to write about something, but when he would say, "Okay, can I write about Rojava? and they were like, mm. and then, like, even if they will agree, they later will come back and say, "Maybe not that," and, and like, would be endless discussion. So he also tried to collect signatures uh, to try to create non flying zone um, for Rojava. and he just did whatever he can uh endlessly
0: i mean it's it's interesting it's gonna you know because they always say if it bleeds it leads and probably nowhere in the world has suffered more devastatingly than than syria and in particular java so it's odd that they were not interested in covering it unless one thinks about the social (laughs) experiment that they were doing there that nobody wants to cover and i wonder Nikki, if you could just say a bit more um I, I know David talked a lot about how he connected the experiment in Rojava to his well his father's experience of the Spanish Civil War and, and did he talk to, with you about that and and how did he frame that?
2: Yeah of course uh, his father was uh yeah was his hero like uh, how uh he he, he talked a lot about details of how um, his father went to Rojava, how he ended up being not a soldier, but the ambulance driver, <laughs> and how like, they show uh, in Spain Stalinist movies. And his father was saying, oh, okay, <laughs> this is not the communism I'm actually signed up for. Um, yeah, and Rojava was this, for, for him uh, the same civil war, Spanish civil war that is happening in our generations. That's why he was going there. Actually, we're supposed to go there together uh, with David and it mm-hmm. happens, but I hope to go to rojava myself with uh, journalists and yeah, and also contribute as much as I can. The answer to this question is clearly like, he, he felt like his, uh, in his time, this is what he's supposed to do in Rojava. So to do exactly the same as his father was doing in Spain.
0: Well, well, Debbie, maybe you can fill us in a little bit about the social experiment that's going on there and and what makes it both revolutionary and feminist. I think that that will be of real interest to us.
3: Thank you. First of all, thank you also for inviting me to this discussion this morning. It's great to be with you all, and it's great to see Nika again across the ocean. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, I think it's very important to say that in addition to the influence of David's father, there's also the influence of David's mother, and that that David, I think, was, among other things, as an anarchist, of course, very anti-hierarchical, you know, against domination of all kinds, but also very much of a feminist. And I think that the distinctly feminist aspects of the Rojava revolution, especially really, really spoke to him in a sort of deep, sort of, you know, empathetic way. So that's one of the things that I'd like to talk a little bit about is just how poignant that revolution is from the standpoint of its profoundly feminist aspect. And, you know, a lot of people seem to think, sort of think about Rojava as something that happened kind of overnight. You know, the Syrian war began in 2011, and then in 2012, the Kurds began to declare autonomy. But actually, the seeds for this were sown decades before in the form of the Kurdish women's movement, which was especially active in, I mean, In Turkey, as most people, I'm sure your listeners would know, the Kurds are really spread out over four nation states, and especially in Turkey, where um, Abdullah Chalan had been doing a lot uh, of—was born and did a lot of his writings in Turkish, and where the, uh, you know, PKK— Is based. So the women's movement there already back in the early 2000s and even before, I mean, really, you can trace it all the way back to, you know, decades back to Kurdish uprisings. So the women's movement had been growing and working underground and then began also in Syria, even under the Assad regime in 2005. It started organizing its own movements and many women went to jail. Women were tortured. But so, so when the Syrian civil war began, really everything was kind of in place, which is also, I think, something that's of interest, should be sort of for the left in general, you know, that you have to do that education, that organizing, you know, that and and wait for the right moment, so that they began to um, really be able much more out in the open after the after the autonomy was declared in 2012 to put these women's institutions into place. And it's you have to see it in order to believe just how much of a, a feminist society Rojava really is. I mean, women are, not only are they make up 40% of every representational body and are they co-chairs at every level of government, but also the umbrella women's organization Congreia star um, is sort of reaches into every aspect of civil society so there are educational platforms they go into communities and villages they've made sure that the rojava what we would call a constitution but since they're not a state they call it a social contract includes provisions against child marriage you know against polygamy against all these things. So it's it's almost, you have to almost see it to believe it, that women in every aspect of society, which Nima was, was uh, you know, sort of gesturing to in, in your fine opening remarks, Nima, in every aspect of society, women really play leadership roles. And because of that, and, you know, studies show that where women are represented, conflict is diminished, that in over and over again in social... Um, experiments or social projects where women are allowed to have leadership voices. And I don't mean just the window dressing where, you know, somebody's uh, sister like in Turkey is appointed to lead, you know, lead a a commission or something. I'm talking about where they have real meaningful input and are represented at at least 35 percent in every legislative body. Uh, that those things have a huge impact on women's lives in terms of, and not only on women's lives, in terms of reducing domestic violence and in terms of parity and economic equality, but also overall for society in general, for men and women and children, of making society a better, stronger, and healthier place. So I think that was very significant for David personally, and it's also have been a very, very important part of the Rojava project.
1: Well, let me ask this question of uh, probably Zika uh, or both of you. What do you uh, attribute uh, media non-coverage or disinterest in Rojava? I mean, either one of you can answer that probably. Or is it the disingenuous (laughs) uh, interest that they had?
2: I can't speak about Guardian, uh, because David tried to publish in Guardian several times, and I think he published once. Uh, so one of the things was that it's a lot of uh, Turkish uh, people working in uh, in certain places, and they will just uh, start from, um, uh, you know, fact-checking, <laughs> and it will slow up the process of publication, and then, uh, and then we will complain, and then it will be that, and then it will be this. So it's not like a uh, Soviet-style censorship when you cannot publish anything, but um, it's just a bizarre politics of uh, contemporary media that David was uh, very angry about. For a while, on his Twitter was. Uh, the pin post was uh, against Guardian. And, uh, yeah, he was very strongly, uh, very strongly convinced that the only way to go is to create your own media.
3: You know, I I would add, I think that's absolutely true, of course. Um, and uh, as Nika uh, David's experience with the Guardian was very difficult and fraught. And, and, and you know, but... But I also would say just in, in general, and in, in terms of the bigger picture, um, that I think that, you know, in general, as as you know very well, and I'm sure the listeners of this program know, any conflict that is deemed outside the first world, so-called, or the global north, is often underrepresented, terribly so. I think the politics of Rojava, people love to glorify the female fighters, and there's all those photos, and they love talking about how they vanquished ISIS, but there's much less attention because of the, you know, so, whether you want to call them socialist type or anarchist type, um, Politics of Rojava, that there's much less attention, therefore, um, in the in Western media, because people are happy to talk about what the fighters are fighting against, but not so much what they're fighting for, uh, even though their grassroots democracy there is something that should absolutely speak to Americans. We have a long history of grassroots democracy in this country, town meetings and you know that date back to the Revolutionary War. But also, I would say, you know, and and here I think um, this is something that the American left needs to think about, that there really has been a growing isolationism in this country. You know, uh, Trump was kind of the worst avatar of that. But there are even, you know, people within the American left who would never say things like America first, but who have... Um, to some extent, diminished the traditional internationalist attitude of of left politics. And while it's understandable that right now there's a huge domestic crisis, people are going hungry, you know, one in five children doesn't have food to eat in the morning, Um, but in this country, which is absolutely shameful, it has also, I think, to some extent, Um, diminished, you know, the the sufficient interest in what's going on abroad. And also, there's the whole, this is another question altogether, which you could have a whole show on, but the whole question of sort of anti-imperialism. And there is often a a knee-jerk attitude that any um, involvement that the United States has in a country outside the U.S. borders has to automatically be bad, and that therefore, you know, that that we have to withdraw all our troops, we have to completely get out of any kind of relationship that we have with a place like Syria. And this, I think, has been very unfortunate because, as as I'm sure most of you you know, it was very much the fact that the small number of troops who were present in Syria being withdrawn has led to the invasion of another imperialist power, Turkey, which really now threatens the entire Rojava project, a project which is, frankly, very precious and so extraordinary. I mean, outside of Chiapas it's hard to see anything like this going on you know in many other parts of the world so um i think that's been part of the issue too for why it's been ignored
0: well i think you know one of the reasons we keep coming back to rojava on this show is is exactly what you're mentioning that that um that dimension of internationalism has been very lacking in of late as you say partly because of the problems here and i, I remember the african american intellectual fred moten saying you know thanking the palestinians for reawakening the internationalism of the black radical tradition and in a certain sense uh, rojava yes. has has a similar standing mm-hmm. i did wonder if if either of you could could explain a little bit more this term we have been using democratic confederalism or democratic municipalism and and the context in which that emerged and also Perhaps it's it's relationship to Ojalan's and or the PKK in general's uh, initial Marxist-Leninist framework for for thinking politics and perhaps Nima you want to jump in here too, our historian of the Kurdish struggle.
1: Well, if if I could just uh, set off, the one thing that uh, Ojalan I want to mention this. I mean, I, we are all aware of it, but. He has been in solitary confinement in an island since 1999. Next month, it will be 22 years. So that's unprecedented. I did a little bit of uh, looking into it and as the world's respect for Nelson Mandela, but he did not spend that much, that many years in solitary confinement. And he is known for being the longest, uh, you know, the most famous political prisoner that we know of in this uh, you know, last century and this, this century. But uh the fact that PKK has made changes to its policies, it doesn't mean that they have reversed course. but what happened I, w- I want to ask both Nika and uh, Debbie about this uh this democratic confederalism is it a combined work, and whose brainchild was it if you can if you can ask that
3: well um I I would say I can just give you a little bit of background. My father, for many years, was trying to answer the question, which he was posed. I remember this. Unfortunately, it betrays my age, but as early as you know, the late 1960s and early 70s, by by people wherever he would go during that very momentous era of you know of of anti war and everything, and and also sort of a new counterculture he was constantly being asked how do we get from here to there how do we get from here to there and he began to try and th- in thinking through this question to really emphasize the idea that the way we were going to make social change was by t- trying to take back power from the state he was an anarchist like David for for my father for many decades trying to take back power from the state, and that the way that we had to do it was not by insurrection, it was not sufficient, obviously, to be out in the streets protesting, but it also isn't sufficient just counting on the ballot box, you know, going to cast a ballot every four years, and that the way to do it really was to to empower local assemblies at the neighborhood level, and little by little create a kind of a dual power and opposition to the power of the nation state, and, and try and slowly, essentially, Uh, you know, withdraw that power by having these neighborhood assemblies that would confederate into larger regional assemblies and, and, you know, make decisions on regional level by sending delegates, which is very different from representational politics. It's not just about voting for a candidate who decides to be a candidate, but it's rather that the assembly chooses a delegate who really... um, can only make decisions based on what the assembly wants and who constantly returns. So there's a kind of a dialectic between the very most local assemblies and then the re- the regional assemblies and discussion back and forth. And that that was really the best way to to try and ultimately usurp the power of the nation state and that these you know, assemblies would be made of neighbors and of people who were in the best position to steward their communities. And I think that, and he called this, this idea libertarian municipalism. Um, He also sometimes called, referred to it as communalism. And I think that this idea that as as many people know, you know, when Ocalan was imprisoned in 1999 and he had to prepare his own defense, um, he he was allowed to have access to a lot of books in preparation, and he read my father's sort of magnum opus, The Ecology of Freedom, and that spoke to him. He read my father's book on cities, um, which, you know, it's... Urbanization to cities—it's called—but that really sort of tries to outline a lot of these ideas, even more specifically. in other books, and of course, he was also influenced by many, many other thinkers. You know, uh, Wallerstein and many other, many other people. Um, so, in that, he he kind of in that moment recognized that that and and also in, and as a result of, you know, what was going on with the fall of the Soviet Union, that these movements, nationalistic movements in the past had been unsuccessful because they didn't deal with the question of the state. And it was in that moment, I think, that he just, you know, he thought and decided that it was better to try to empower people to try and not call for a separate kurdish state which ran the risk of of basically you know of what happened in the soviet union and has happened in other nationalist movements of uh, essentially consolidating power perhaps a power that was a little bit kinder towards every av- you know average people but that it's much more important to empower people themselves. And that this this idea really spoke to him. So, I mean, and he calls it democratic confederalism, which I think is actually lovely because he's kind of, in a way, expanded both in, in the way the term speaks to people and has taken these ideas and adapted them for the Kurdish people and expanded on them and elaborated on them. And so That's kind of how it comes together. And it is ultimately a rejection of what was had been up until then a much more traditional Marxist Leninist approach to social change. And it represents a a, a really a new, I would say, like a, a sort of a third way forward. And that makes it very exciting, I think. And I think that's why it spoke so much to David as well.
1: Now, Nika, uh, your, your take on uh, what David saw in Democratic confederalism if you don't mind.
2: Yeah, David was uh, quoting, David would tell me whom. He was always saying that, you know, the people just realize that uh, uh, it doesn't matter which language uh, the police speak when they talk to you. So we don't want to create our own state to be tortured by the... Uh, secret police uh, in Kurdish. Uh, so yeah, it was so obvious. I think everything about Rojava, in a way, uh, as David was saying, from its explicit feminism to empowering people to be basically being this totally successful democratic anarchist experiment, was uh, so he was just in love with that. And I also want to add. Uh, to probably explanation why it was such difficult to publish anything about Rojava. it's because it's actually one of the longest successful experiment because it exists for like how many, eight years now? Uh, and uh, they exist under attack, under like horrible military attack, and still uh when david came to rojava people were talking, and still uh when david came to rojava people were saying to him like okay we don't have this and that but at least we are free so it, people people there who is living there they uh, they clearly
3: embrace what is going on and by the way i think it's really important to to you know to emphasize just how much um, danger that project is in right now because of the as as I'm again I'm sure you know many of your listeners already know Turkey invaded Afrin in in uh, January of 2018. So actually the on the 20th when a lot of us were celebrating the departure of Donald Trump that marked the three year anniversary and the litany of destruction. That Turkey has left behind and that these Turkish-backed jihadist militias have engaged in. Afrin, in case people don't know, is sort of one of the larger areas of Rojava. It was one of the th- three original cantons. Now there's about, you would say, seven regions. So, But it was an area of about a million people. And, and it just has been extraordinary, what has happened there in terms of the ethnic cleansing and the way that the Turks have pushed people. 300,000 civilians have been displaced. 400,000 people have been resettled in the region. More than 7,000 people have been kidnapped, including many, many women who have either been held for ransom or you know tried to be made into brides for fighters um you know hundreds and hundreds of civilians have been killed there's been you know extensive documentation things like they they've cut down more than 300,000 trees because it was a big olive tree region and olive oil was is a, is a big uh, you know product from that region um and then turkey of course again went into um this another sort of section of rojava again with trump's tacit approval and is now continuously basically shelling areas cutting off water supply you know supposedly there's a there's a uh, agreement that was signed that was supposed to lead to a ceasefire but turkey does not abide by it russia does not enforce it so the region is is under terrible duress. there's you know the alho A refugee camp that has more than sixty thousand people still living there. It's and NGOs can't go in and help them because it's basically an active war zone. It's been, you know, an extraordinary level of hardship that the people there have faced, and and something that you know people would really, I think, do well to um, do whatever they can in the way of supporting them. I mean, I think right now that is going to amount to. Uh, You know, trying to put pressure, frankly, on the Biden administration to uh, push forward for Turkey to, to enter into some kind of final resolution with its own Kurdish population, you know, so that this idea of the Kurds being terrorists can finally be abandoned and the people of Syria can be left alone to live in peace.
4: I wonder if I could ask, uh, since I think it's, uh, it's the proper time, we have a new administration. We know that uh, Biden, and, uh, when he was Vice President Obama, he was one of the, those advo- who advocated for uh, the partition of Iraq. So uh, do you see a scenario where he will push for that idea in Syria? Connected to that is, that, uh, is the idea of building alliances with other uh, groups, I wonder if you could sort of uh, shed some light on that on that uh, front.
3: Well, I mean, I, I I wish I could predict exactly what Biden will do. I think it's actually good for the Kurdish people. And by the way, just to say. It's very important to emphasize that this is a multi-ethnic region. It's not just Kurds. It's Assyrians, Christians, Yazidis, Arabs. You know, so it's a and that that non-sectarian aspect, which uh, Nima mentioned at the very beginning, is extremely important about this region. But I mean, I think it is um, a cause of, for optimism that Biden has appointed Brett McGurk to be uh, his advisor on the National Security Council in this area. McGurk you know has and and um, others I think funnily enough in the military establishment have been very supportive of the Kurdish people because they've seen they've they've treated them like comrades in arms, which is in fact what what they were until the United States abandoned them. Um, I, I the Kurds are not asking for a separate. State, you know, and they are not even asking, as they would have every right to, to have a, you know, a a region carved out for them that consisted of the southeast of Turkey, part of Iran, Iraq, and Syria. What the Syrian Kurds are asking for essentially is just a level of autonomy, the ability to control their own regions as they have been. Uh, as Nika mentioned, really now for the last you know nine years, and to allow themselves the um, freedoms both for women and for minority communities that they have implemented, you know, including things that they were not allowed to do for many years under the Syrian regime to speak their own language, to wear their own clothes, to teach their children in their own language. When I was there, I saw textbooks that had previously, they had only been allowed to have textbooks in the Arabic language. Now, every textbook is also produced in the Syrian language. Syriac language and in Kurdish and in Arabic, and so you know all of these freedoms um, that they have fought really so hard to to build and to create and to fight against ISIS. <laughs> Uh, to preserve really should be a basic, I mean, that kind of autonomy for a people should be should be a basic part of, of any democratic country. And it would be very nice if when you think that that the Kurdish region, what we think of as the Kurdish region or Rojava, but they refer really to it, they prefer to use the autonomous administration of North and East Syria to represent all of the people in the region, that that accounts now for almost a Third of Syria, that if nothing else, the Biden administration should absolutely insist that the Kurds have a place at the at any peace negotiations. As you know, you know there have been peace negotiations in Geneva. The Kurds were completely um, omitted from those. Uh, They certainly need a place in those peace negotiations on the future of Syria. And really, it would be nice if the Biden administration would acknowledge that what they have done in the autonomous administration of North and East Syria really provides a model for the whole country which is to empower the people at the local level and allow them to, to, to live in peace, to make decisions about their communities to confederate and that's what they would like to see is basically a federated Syria in which their region you know has, a, has, has autonomy.
0: And I just wanted to pick up on something, Debbie, that you mentioned there, which is um, the importance of all that's going on in Rojava in relation to the kind of military presence of the U.S. And take it to something that, that Nika, you write about in in relation to the Museum of Care that came out of the Carnival for David and also out of your engagement with Rojava. And there's something really beautiful in in what you write that really moved and inspired me which was about trying to rethink what gets fetishized here in the West, in our West, not the West that's Rojava, um, as you know, women engaged in military struggle, women in uniform, women with guns. And you turn it very nicely, I thought, into a question of care. Because as you point out, this is not actually about offensive territorial warfare, but about defense. And I'd love you to say more about that because I think it it goes to what's so deeply feminist about this revolution, the way you express it as as a revolution about care, and how that challenges a whole lot of masculinist ideas not only about militarism but also about production, production, production. And so, 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 please tell tell us more about the Museum of Care and how it relates to um, the feminist project in Rojava. Yeah, maybe David first uh, will
2: uh, will say about uh, yeah like this. Feminist fighters, which is uh, very different from, from fighters in other parts of the world, and def- defense as a right.
3: I can just briefly say that, the you know, it's, it's uh, no accident that they call themselves defense units. They don't refer to it as an army the way we do, because they are not about trying to take over territory. And in a funny way, the United States also set them up sort of badly by pushing them on to Raqqa, to areas that had not been traditionally Kurdish areas, but that they needed, of course, to rout ISIS from. As as most people know, the Kurds were the only reliable ground forces in the fight against ISIS. So, um, you know, and then abandoned them, and then the United States, after doing that, essentially, you know, turned their back on them. But I think that it's important we said at the beginning you know to talk about what they are fighting for not just who they are fighting against and in that sense i think that this museum of care idea really does speak to the values that the that the kurdish people have and that i think you know that davids shared very strongly these values of the the importance of people having spaces in which they can have social relations that are kind of built on a new foundation on a non-hierarchical foundation non-patriarchal foundation relations that in, you know, that aren't built on domination. And I think it's been especially sort of wonderful that one of the ways that Nika's carrying forward David's legacy is by creating this space that, or continuing a project that they had begun together to create these spaces. And Nika, you're the best person to, to talk about what you have in mind there.
2: Yeah, I would just say that David's one of the David's ideas was just general, not for everybody, a proposal to replace production and consumption with freedom and care. And uh, in this case, it's very important that the care and freedom is coming together. So because prisons are also places that care for people, because they provide us, provide unfortunate people who is there with shelter and food, but they don't provide with freedom. And uh, for Rodrigo, for that's uh, clearly, they, they They just so successfully, you know, have an army that protecting them and protecting everybody in the world from the, the, because they did defeat the Islamic State. And in the same time, the people inside of Rojava is still report that they like they are living in a free space. So this Museum of Care originally uh, was, I think, a year ago, uh, was a bunch of conversation with different people. and with David, of course. And uh, it's come from our essay called Sinari Art World that we wrote with David for Iflux. And so the idea was that um, museums, uh, as we know them in West, not in Rojo West, in our like, uh, colonial West, is uh, contemporary churches that produce values. And the values that they produce is... Um, this uh, artifacts of uh, total uh, icons. And so we started to think about Leonardo da Vinci, Mona Lisa, that is uh, drawn once, but then many, many hundreds of years, people cared about that and they redraw it and commented on this and uh, keep reposting that. And most of these people were women. It's like, if you think about who is the teachers, who is museum guards, Uh, and so on and so forth, most of them are women. So we were thinking about replacement of this church of value creation with some place that will care about creating a relationship between people and maintain them. And, um, yeah, so that was an original idea. And and it was a wonderful conversation with uh, uh, Savinas from Rojovo Video Commune uh, who totally struck me with uh, so different experience of how to be an artist <laughs> like how i experience of being an artist in the west with a total fundraising and trying to navigate and uh, they're doing that in roshoba that is in war when they just said yes we had an idea to make a movie and we talk about uh with our like friends and neighbors and it helped us so they can't fundraise so they don't fundraise they just do things that uh, make sense for for everybody uh, if you
0: can. In a time like this of such crisis, why do you think culture is such an important domain for people in Rojava?
4: Can, can I just link to that, uh, expand a little bit on that? And, and I keep thinking from when uh, Debbie brought the idea of uh, the narrative. Uh, and Nima and I, we talk a lot about minorities, especially the Berbers in Algeria. Uh, also the women, uh, when you read the work of Frantz Fanon and others, uh, there was high optimism that after the revolution, uh, the women uh, will be equal, that men will accept them because of the idea that they contributed to the, to the revolution and they were instrumental in the independence. Nobody denied that. As you talk about your experiments, I keep thinking of women leaders in Algeria who done the same thing. The same thing now during the, the last, uh, uh, since the 80s, the Berbers have been fighting for their right to, you know, language, self-independence, all of those kind of things. A key impediment to that was the state. The states control the narrative, but there is a huge struggle that the, the Berbers have, have done. And now uh, the Berbers, the uh, the language is accepted. And it's a matter of how carrying this project later, but still there are a lot of uh, a lot of uh, hurdles. I wonder if you could talk a little bit what makes it what makes your experience so successful.
3: I could say something about the the women's movement in Rojava in that respect. One of the things that I think has happened often traditionally. In movements, and my good friend Meredith Tax, who's a feminist of many decades and really knows the history. Could would say I'm sure that you know over and over again women are promised that after the revolution we will also take care of your rights and one of the things I think that makes the Rojava revolution very special is that the women said from the very beginning even long before the revolution we are creating our own autonomous institutions our own autonomous councils our own women's houses and and the revolution has to be about women and to his credit Abdullah Öcalan said the same thing often um, in the face of a lot of opposition from other leaders in the PKK. And that's one of the reasons, of course, why he's quite revered by by the women there. I want to also just mention that there's a lovely new book coming out called The Daughters of Kobani by Gail Tzemach Lemon that's coming out next month. And she does a remarkable job of weaving together how the feminist aspects of the Rojava revolution also led to the empowerment of the women within the um, women's defense forces, the YPJ, um, the the women's defense units, to use the precise term. Um, and and she tells the stories. It reads like a novel. It's a phenomenal story by by focusing on four specific women and how they become empowered through two of them rising to be commanders of YPJ, including Rojava Falat, who eventually was in charge of the operation that took Raqqa. And she really weaves together a lot of the kind of ideology of Rojava with a compelling story that, as I said, reads like a novel. So that's another another little thing that, that listeners might want to um, look at as a way of sort of, you know, getting the feeling of what it's like to be in Rojava in that moment. Um, but I think that that is really a critical aspect of it—that the women said the revolution really has to be about a women's revolution, not something that's separate.
2: Yeah, David also was saying that uh, for the change, they just gave women the weapon in Rojava, <laughs> so in case if somebody disagrees, they can do something about that.
1: <laughs> Let me just uh, add one thing: part of um, part of the conversation we have talked about—you know—Kurds uh, not. Uh, wanting a uh, separate state and, you know, this is going in line with with the realities of the world that, uh, you know, internationalism is definitely the way to go and, uh, you know, nation states, etc. Now, um, many, many Kurds, even pro Ojalan, you know, PKK supporters, uh, accuse him of the exact opposite of what turkey iran and syria and uh, and iraqis uh, accuse him of which is you know being a separatist now many kurds you know uh, are angry with ojalan for not wanting a separate kurdish state <laughs> in mean, in contrast those states you know turkey etc iran do uh, accuse the kurds mainly ojalan in this case of uh, being a separatist but uh, going back uh, to the uh, care museum, is is there any chance, uh, Nika, for um, for Rojava, um, uh, you know, artists, for instance, to uh, somehow get recognition or? Uh, uh, in Europe, in the U.S.? I mean, what steps can be taken to remedy that? Because it, it seems like that nobody listens to them. Of course, now it's special because of the pandemic, but...
2: I think Rojava artists, especially this video commune, uh, is very much recognized in the Western art world. They did have an exhibition in New York, and uh, they kind of... Like in a traditional art world, uh, they recognized... But there is another question. was really revolution. So in a way, they redefined the very idea of what does it mean to be an artist? Because they're not, you know, they're not, they're not capitalistic place. They don't build the galleries. They don't try to build the traditional museums. So for them, artists is uh, in a way some somebody else. Like in this conversation with Sivinas, um, I would suggest she did name an artist as being more as a facilitator, as somebody who is uh, kind of connecting people and bringing something towards the community when community wants. And that's why they don't need uh, vertical museums, grant proposals, and so on and so forth. Although they're very successful because... uh, So I know that now they film uh, a feature movie, which is amazing because... This is in the same time reality show because it's a movie about war. And uh, it's a full feature movie. And they do a lot of... Like, they just organize a bunch of, um, I would say, movie theaters that was closed by Ajalan, or by uh, Turkish state. Um, and then they just... Because it, it was... a. Uh, uh, um, suppression of the Kurdish language, and they just did it all by themselves, with no support, with no, you know, budget, so on. So I think we should learn from them, not vice versa.
0: Nika, my understanding is that you're inviting anybody around the world to participate in the Museum of Care. C- can you can you tell us how that works and and what that kind of invitation looks like?
2: Oh, like so, I, uh, this is an experiment. It's We don't know how it will work, but yes, we're trying to create something uh, more or less as a forum, as a space where anybody can come and create their own, uh, um, how we call them, rooms. Uh, we also have a residency because um, David has a house on Fire Island. And before he died, we were talking uh, that his house should be turned into the place where we're... Uh, we'll invite friends and colleagues and, uh, you know, discussions and uh, let them leave there. And so now it's hopefully will become one of the residents. And after his death, after I announced that it's like 10 more places around the world uh, pop up and people said, can we join? Can we also give a place in Italy, in Spain, uh, in London uh, into this network? So, yeah, that's the Museum of Care as it is now. We have a reading group uh, and we have assembly every Friday at 8 o'clock London time and Zoom. And, and when COVID will finish, we will have these offline residences.
0: That sounds really exciting, and we'll we'll link um, to to the uh, page for the carnival for David and for the Museum of Care, and and get it out on our social media so listeners can can check this out. Um, this is a really exciting project, and um, we have only a little while left on the show, and I, I just wanted to to ask Nika and Debbie about something that David was not preoccupied with but but interested in which is why the mainstream left was so weak and also failing so badly to, to project a kind of internationalist perspective on things. And I know we, we touched on that briefly during the conversation, but I think I, I'd love to hear more about his analysis of why that was and how Rojava could play a part in kind of reawakening that internationalism.
3: Nika, please feel free to interrupt. Um, I, I feel like I've talked a lot. I mean, I think that um, it would be presumptuous for me to say what was in David's mind. But I think that just, you know, in the course of conversations that he and I had over the years, one of the things that David loved most about sort of the movements of 30, 40 years ago was their utopian Aspects, you know, that there was a time in the 60s and 70s when people really felt like we could create a society that could absolutely maximize freedom and creativity on every level and and we've become narrowed understandably by the terrible you know economic suffering that we've been sort of all put through over the years and the decades and that that has in a certain sense forced us to narrow our focus in many ways to things that certain you know that many social democracies in Europe already have like healthcare universal healthcare but for David, what, you know, one of the things that I loved about David was that he had this kind of high utopian idealism. And by the way, and that, of course, was true of my father as well, who, you know, went to, to even to the last weeks of his life as considered himself a revolutionary and, you know, believed that we could treat, create a society that was truly rational and that really did maximize um freedom and, 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 as I said, creativity. So I think that that combined with a kind of a lot of confusion on the left about organization has made it difficult for the left to chart a path forward that's efficacious. What I think is exciting is that that's starting to happen more and more now. Organizations like Black Socialists in America like symbiosis that are focusing on this idea of building dual power that are focusing on the new municipalist movements that have spread around the world, you know, and obviously there, you know, there's great variations. I mean, it's great that they have a municipalist mayor in Barcelona, Adekalao. Nobody's going to say that that's a revolution, but it's a it's a start. And the point is that these things take years to develop. But one of the things that my father and Uchalan and and David certainly all had in common was in their profound belief in education and the importance of reading, studying, and in and, and affinity groups. My father called them affinity groups after Spain and and you know that's basically what these assemblies are. And so, you know, I think that if they could have one wish, David, my dad, you know, in common, it would be that the American left would start taking this project in hand as well and find issues around which to organize. There certainly are many, development in communities, and actually begin to get people into neighborhood assemblies so that when a moment arises in the future, the way the Occupy moment did, that we are kind of like the Kurds, ready to go, so to speak. You know, that we've had practice in democratic decision-making, and consensus, and, and in the idea of people feeling empowered just the way they kind of did and there have been some great moments like after superstorm sandy in new york you know when people got together and did um these sort of collective things that they worked on together these projects so that is what i think would be their their wish for a future left
0: dubrovsky artist and activist, and Debbie Bookchin, journalist, author, and activist. And we have dedicated this show to the memory of the late David Graeber. All our shows are available to download at kpfk.org and can be found also as podcasts on Spotify and other platforms. Thanks, as always, to Ahmad Ibrahim for post-production. And thanks, too, to our sister show, Middle East in Focus, for allowing us to use their regular half hour to produce this tribute to David Graeber. My name is David Lloyd of the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or SWANA Collective. And on behalf of my co hosts, Nima Ardalan and Hamoud Sali, and all of our collective members, I'd like to wish our listeners a great day.